0: You are listening to Lighthearted, the official podcast of the United States Lighthouse Society. My name is Jeremy Dontremont. Welcome. My co-host today is Cindy Johnson, award-winning volunteer and chapter leadership committee member of Friends of Portsmouth Harbor Lighthouses. Hi, Cindy. Hi, Jeremy. This is episode 111 of Lighthearted, and this is March 28th, 2021. Today, we're going to talk about two lighthouses that are located at opposite corners of the United States, pedos Island Light in Washington State and Cape Canaveral Light in Florida. But first, uh, what's happened on this state in history, Cindy?
1: Well, on March 28, 1950, the Ambrose Lightship LV-111, which marked New York City's main shipping channel, was struck in dense fog by the ocean liner Santa Monica. The hull of the lightship was ruptured, but it was repaired and relocated to Portland, Maine. After its retirement in 1969, it was sold for scrap. Its predecessor, the Ambrose Lightship LV-87, is now part of South Street Seaport in New York City.
0: Before we move on, I want to correct something that was said in Episode 108. We said that Hillsborough Inlet Lighthouse in Florida was built for the 1904 St. Louis World's Fair, and that after the fair, the federal government purchased it. But according to Ralph Krugler, who's the historian for Hillsborough Inlet Lighthouse, that is incorrect. The Russell Wheel and Foundry Company of Detroit, Michigan, was awarded the contract for the lighthouse in 1905 after the fair. Also, the date the lighthouse went into service was March 8, 1907, not March 7th. As I mentioned, we're discussing two lighthouses in today's episode. First, we're going to talk with Idri and Terry Vinson about Paidos Island Lighthouse in Washington. They've written a new book about it, and the book is coming out tomorrow.
1: Paidos Island is the northernmost of the San Juan Islands in the state of Washington. The 207-acre island is in the Strait of Georgia, just two miles from the Canadian border. A light and fog signal station was established in 1893 on Alden Point, the northwestern tip of the island. At first, the station consisted of a fog signal building, a duplex keeper's house, and a simple stake light. A more substantial lighthouse building was added in 1908.
0: Two keepers and their families lived in a spacious duplex house on the station. Helene Glidden, the daughter of one of the early keepers, later wrote a popular book called The Light on the Island, and the book served as an inspiration for the formation of the preservation group that was formed in 2007.
1: The light was automated and de-staffed in 1974, and the island became the Paidos Island Marine State Park. In the years that followed, the lighthouse fell into disrepair through neglect and vandalism. In 2007, the keepers of the Patos Light was formed to preserve the lighthouse.
0: After retiring from her career in environmental science, Idri Vinson has volunteered at the Orcas Island Historical Museum in the positions of Vice President of the Museum's Board of Directors and Museum Archivist. Her specialty is the field of historic photography. She currently serves as the President of the Keepers of the Pados Light.
1: Idri's granddaughter Terry Vinson holds a degree in Asian Studies with a focus on history. Her graduate studies were at the University of Hawaii. Terry began volunteering at the Orcas Island Historical Museum alongside Idri, doing archival organization and research. She eventually became the director of the museum's oral history program. Terry serves as the secretary of the Keepers of the Pados Light.
0: Idri and Terry Vinson's comprehensive book, Pedos Island Lighthouse, has been published by the History Press and will be available for purchase tomorrow, March 29th. I had a chance to speak with Idri and Terry a few weeks ago. Let's listen to that conversation now. I am speaking this afternoon with Idri and Terry Vinson, and we're going to be talking about Pedos Island Lighthouse in Washington and also about their new book, Paidos Island Lighthouse, which is uh, available for purchase the day after this podcast episode is being posted. People will be able to hear this podcast on March 28th, and I believe the the uh, release date for the book is March 29th. But we'll talk about that in a moment. And Idri and Terry are joining me from their home on uh, Orca's Island in, in Washington. It's so great to have you with me today, Idri and Terry. I really appreciate it.
2: Thank you.
3: Thank you for having us.
0: Idri, if we could start just a little bit about your background. I understand you had a background in environmental science, but historic preservation, I think, has been a strong interest of yours for for a while.
2: That's right. I started working as a cultural resource consultant, and then I worked for the Bureau of Land Management. After that, I went into the State Historic Preservation Office, and from there, I went to Department of Transportation. And I've worked for Federal Highway Administration for a number of years as an environmental project manager. So historic preservation was one of the fields that I covered most.
0: And what exactly led you to becoming involved with the Orcas Island Historical Museum and also the uh, keepers of the Pados Light?
2: Well, I think it started before I actually came. My daughter was working on a project there, and she had told them that I would soon retire and move to Orcas. And so uh, right away, they asked me if I would volunteer. So I did. I joined their board, and and I've been associated with them one way or another ever since.
0: And the uh, Lighthouse organization kind of grew out of of that, I, I
2: imagine. Well, one of the other per- persons who joined the board about the time I did asked me to join the Keepers of the Peitos Light. So I did, and she, she is still a member. We both are active, and she is also on our board.
0: And Terry, I think I have a, a hunch on uh, what got you involved with the, uh, both the Historical Museum and the Keepers of the Peitos Light. Did your grandmother, by any chance, have anything to do with that? And before you answer, let, let me just, I haven't mentioned yet that Terry is uh, Idri's granddaughter. I think that <laughs> may, may have had an effect on, on you getting involved.
3: It certainly did. I was home for summer break one year, and I needed something to do. And so she took me to the museum with her, and I started volunteering. And then I came back a couple years later and started volunteering more doing more projects. Eventually, I uh, became the coordinator for the oral history project at the museum, and then she asked me to get involved with Pedos and doing research. And I love to do research, so here I am.
0: Sounds like a good fit. It's uh, so great that you're able to, to work together on these things. This is a question again for both of you. The light station on Paidos Island is very well documented with lots of facts and photos. I'm amazed at how much material is in your book, how many images are in there, as well as uh, all the factual history. How were you able to find so many photos?
2: We made a trip down to uh, the Northwest Coast Guard Museum and um, began our collection right there. In fact, they would send photographs to us every time they found anything they thought we might use. And then we contacted everybody we knew and asked for photographs, but then they just started coming in and they came from people we'd never heard of before. So we got a lot of photographs that we did not expect.
0: How did the book project on Pedos Island Lighthouse come about in the first place?
2: We had a trip to Washington DC to the National Archives. Well, Terry photographed all of the log books so that we had everything that they had written from 1893 all the way to 1933. And um, we had just done a lot of work writing little articles for the newspaper here. And Nick Teague, who was Bureau of Land Management Recreation Planner, kept asking us to write it in a book. And so finally we did.
0: Well, I'm glad you did. I'm sure a lot of people will be glad you did. If we could go back to just a real basic question here, how did Pedos Island get its name?
2: From the Spanish explorers, uh, uh-huh. it's named for the ducks.
0: Are there ducks there?
2: There's not a lot of ducks, but over in Blanchard Cove, there is a rock that is exposed at low tide that looks very much like a duck.
0: Uh, let's talk about the history of the lighthouse. Why and this either of you can certainly answer this. Uh, why were lighthouse and fog signal needed so much at Patos Island?
3: Historically, there were some very bad uh, shipwrecks there. Well, along the whole area, it's very dangerous, quick-moving waters.
2: The John D. Rosenfeld, I think, was one of the major wrecks that happened just before, about three years before the lighthouse was built, and. Um, also, the Zephyr was coming from one of the islands in the Gulf Sound and it crashed on Maine and it was carrying the, the limestone columns that went to the San Francisco Mint. So, with those major wrecks, everybody just thought they needed a lighthouse and certainly they did. The Canadians built theirs first right across the way at Alden Point. I mean, just opposite Alden Point on Saturna.
0: So it started as a uh, fog signal station with uh, basically a a small stake light. First of all, is there a lot of fog in that area? I imagine there is.
2: A lot, yes.
0: Certain times a
2: year when it's more foggy than others? Especially in the wintertime, it's more foggy. And in the spring.
0: And why uh, was the original stake light replaced by a a more uh, substantial lighthouse building in 1908?
2: That, I think, had more to do with it being a government ship that ran aground right in front of the lighthouse. And um, they had to put boards under her to keep her afloat during until the tide came back up again. And so after that, I'm sure they complained loud <laughs> and long. And so um, a, a lighthouse was built that replaced it. So we had a lighthouse just like the one over at Saturna.
0: So let's talk a little bit about the human history of the place. I'm wondering how isolated it was for families there. Was the uh, Pedos Island station, would you say, uh, kind of a comfortable place to live, or how was it for the families there?
2: In the wintertime, the logbooks don't show a lot of people coming and going. In fact, sometimes there's nothing, there's not an entry between October and, say, March of the next year. But in the summertime, They get a lot of visitors, especially there used to be tour boats that went often to Piedos, taking a lot of people at a time. And the Boy Scouts from the Boy Scout camp here um, used to go up there a lot as well. You have a
0: lot in your book about the first keeper, Harry Mahler, and his family. What stands out for you about the Mahler family?
2: Well, the fact that the girls... Kept on going back, in fact, they went back year after year until I think it was nineteen sixty five or sixty eight and they seemed to have, feel a lot of connection, a lot of love for that place on the island. so they must have had a pretty good life there, otherwise, I don't think they would have found it so fondly.
0: There's a beautiful picture of uh Keeper Mahler in your in your book.
2: Yes, he was um a good bit younger than Durgan when he became Keeper. And he was single at the time, and his parents and his brothers and sisters were always coming over to take care of him. I'm sure they did most of the work and the cooking in the in the house and um, took good, good care of him until he was married. And then, of course, his wife was able to do that. But I think Mailer was, I hate to say he was spoiled, but he was pretty self-centered Even though he stayed there for 10 years and he spent the rest of his life um, until he retired in the lighthouse business, he stayed a long time every place he went, it seems.
0: You just pronounced his name Mailer. I I would have thought Mahler, like the famous composer (laughs) Gustav Gustav Mahler. Do do you know that the name is pronounced Mailer in his case? Yes. So moving on to Edward Juergen, he started as an assistant under Mailer. In 1951, his daughter, Helen Glidden wrote a very popular book called uh, The Light on the Island, based on her family's life at Paitos Island. What can you tell me about that book? It's hard to tell when you read it. It's kind of written in the f- form of a novel, really. Is Would you say it's more fact or fiction or, or a mix of both?
2: It's a mix of both, but but I think the thing that comes through for me is the fact that she must have really loved Paitos and her family in order to write about them. And Most everything she writes has at least a grain of truth to it. So even though all the stories aren't true, um, as far as we know, there's no one buried on the island, for example, but she was quite a writer. She actually came to Orcas and talked with some of the library folks here just right after she wrote the book.
0: Which was, I think, 1951, is that when it was published? Yeah. but it's uh, I, I believe there's a, a much more recent edition that's come out Did the the yes. I, the Lighthouse Group has something to do with that.
2: Yeah, in in 2018 was the 125th anniversary of the Lighthouse construction, so we had an anniversary edition put out, and um, I wrote a beginning for it, mm-hmm. and um, we put a lot of our own time and energy into it, including a lot of the photographs that we had gathered.
0: Uh, I wonder if there's anything else related to the the keepers and families who lived there for so long, anything else that kind of stands out in your mind?
2: Well, I think often about the fire that uh, Dale Nelson was able to put out. He was there twice, and in his first term in the 1950s, there was uh, smoke in the lighthouse, and he followed it to his source and found that there was a fire in the roof, and he put it out. And I think when Terry and I were at the National Archives, we ran across some of the books that were burned through to the point that we couldn't even open the pages. And that wow. probably came from that fire. So I'm just so glad and so grateful that he, he did get the fire put out and that we have a lighthouse now to take care of.
0: Yeah, I guess so. Wow. The uh, lighthouse got a a fourth-order Fresnel lens when it was built in 1908. Where is that lens now?
2: That light, you could see for seven miles, had 40,000 candle power. So it was a very beautiful light. As far as I know, it is at the Gibbs Daughters Lighthouse, which is built like a lighthouse, but it's mainly an exhibit that Gibbs himself had built. Brought together all the collections of everything, and I don't know how he actually got it out of the lighthouse. I don't. There's no record of how it was actually taken out.
0: So this is for people who might not know or listening uh, that we're talking about Jim Gibbs, who was a former lighthouse keeper himself and an author of quite a few books about uh, mostly about Pacific Northwest. He was uh, one of my favorite lighthouse authors. I would say there was a really beautiful duplex house on the station for, for quite a few years. And very sadly that was demolished in 1958. And uh, I'm wondering what that was like for local residents. If you've uh, heard talk about how people reacted to that.
2: Well, since it's been gone, our people really miss it. Especially Mailer's daughters. When they first went back and saw that it was gone, they were brokenhearted about that. But at the time, you know, of course, they had orders to demolish it. They had orders to build the triplex. And after the war, there were so many things that were created as necessity during the war that became modern, you know. So they were trying to modernize the lighthouse. They modernized a lot of the equipment that was inside the lighthouse, as well as building a new headquarters for their, their people there.
0: Modernizing can be good in some ways, but we often lose things along the way in the name of modernization. Now, the the station was automated and de-staffed in 1974. The last Coast Guard keeper was Clifford Thresher, and I love the entry he left in the uh, station's logbook when he when he closed everything up. So uh, I think that's really beautiful. Uh, which one of you would like to read that for for our listeners? I will. Thank you, Terry.
3: One last thought before I go. Yesterday is already a dream and tomorrow is only a vision, but each today well-lived makes every yesterday a dream of beauty and every tomorrow a vision of hope. Automation is now in progress.
0: (laughs) Wow. I I just love that. I think that's that's really, really beautiful. Kind of poetic. I don't know if I've heard such a poetic uh, Lighthouse Keepers log entry anywhere else. The uh, BLM, the Bureau of Land Management, and Washington State Parks eventually uh, took over management of the station. And in 2005, the remaining buildings were demolished, except for the lighthouse itself. Would you say that the, the BLM and state parks have been good stewards of the property?
2: Oh, they have. They've been very good stewards. In 2008, the Bureau of Land Management rehabilitated the lighthouse, the Coast Guard still maintains the light, but um, BLM has taken care of it, and, and we, are, we are friends of BLM and State Parks, who operates the campground there. And they take us all out to the island all the time, you know, to work on it, to clean it up, to clean the grounds. And uh, any time that we need help, they come right in and help us. They always support any of our applications for grants or for work that we do at the lighthouse like all of the exhibits for example they go through all the exhibits with us and help us make sure that they're appropriate
0: well that's good i'm glad to hear you, you have such a good good working relationship with them the island is now managed by the state as the patos island marine state park did i have that correct that that name i just that's said that's right mm-hmm. okay And what kinds of things are there for people to do in the park uh, besides the lighthouse?
3: Well, it's a beautiful place to just unwind and relax and unplug from the modern world. There's a lot of camping in the campgrounds and there's some beautiful hike. It's just beautiful and you can paint and relax and bird
0: watch and animal watch. Sounds like a beautiful place to visit.
2: There's no lights there. And so you can see at night, you can see the stars. Oh! In, In fact, people like to watch the sun go down and then watch the stars come out because it's so beautiful.
0: I'll bet it is. Can you tell me how exactly the the keepers of the Pados light was formed?
2: Well, Linda Hudson and her friend Carla Tarkar had read about had red light on the island right when it came out as little girls. And when Linda moved here and found out Patos was not far away, it was a real place, they were excited to go. So they went in one of Nick's cleanup campaigns, and he talked them into starting an organization to take care of the Lighthouse. So that's how they started in 2007.
0: Wow. And what are some of the things the organization has accomplished since then?
2: Well, all of the exhibits that are in the Lighthouse. Were done by uh, The Keepers, the book, the second edition of Light on the Island, and, of course, the book that we have now. Sure. And we have a number of articles that are in the newspapers, and we are about 200 people are members of our Keepers of the Peixos Light. So, um, every summer, we're really active out there on the island, mm-hmm. except, of course, last summer because of covid and this year, this year we're, we're wait, it's a wait-and-see game.
0: Things have been very different in the past year because of the pandemic. But normally, in a normal year, are uh, tours of the lighthouse available for the public? And a second part to that question, how do people get to the island in the lighthouse?
3: Well, there's no sort of public transport out to the island. So you would need a boat, a private vessel, or to charter a boat. And then other than... The internal lighthouse itself, there is no island tour.
0: So if somebody wants to visit, uh, they've managed to get some kind of boat transportation there and they would like to visit the lighthouse, is there sort of a a means by which that can happen?
3: If they can get out to the lighthouse and it is within our open season, uh, we would have a docent out there to show them the lighthouse itself.
0: Okay, good. And uh, the uh, keepers of the Paydos the slide is an all volunteer organization. I was reading, and you've kind of, you've talked about it a bit already. But is there anything else we haven't touched on? Things that the uh, you and the other volunteers do.
2: We just keep it clean and uh, clean up the grounds. Or- if you would like to help, us, they're they're welcome to help us. We have an address. It's post office box nineteen sixty seven in East Sound. 98245.
0: Of course, there's a website. Do you know the uh, address of the website?
2: Keepers of the Petos Light.
0: Is it .com, .org? Or? .org. .org, okay. So keepersofthepatoslight.org. So I have two final questions. Either uh, Idri or, or Terry, you can answer these questions. I'd be happy to hear from, from both of you on these questions if you'd like. But uh, the first of the last two questions, this is for bonus points. Why do you feel that the Paedos Island Lighthouse needs to be preserved?
2: It's so beautiful. It is just breathtaking. When you first get a glimpse of it as you're driving out there in a boat and you see this Mount Baker in the background, it is just awe-inspiring. It's just very beautiful. And I think the more you know about the history, the more you care about that lighthouse and want it to last a long time
0: are two great reasons. It's, a, it's a, just a gorgeous part of the world you have around there. One final question. Again, this is for extra, extra bonus points. Uh, what's been your favorite part of being involved with the Keepers of the Pato Slide?
2: The people and the research. Terry loves to do research. She's very good at it. <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: I can tell from the book. That's obvious. And let's uh, finish by talking a little bit more about the book. Again, it's, it's beautiful. And uh, published by the History Press, right? Yes. It's a really nice-looking book with uh, just uh, very comprehensive history, and lots and lots of great, great photos. As I said, I'm just so impressed you were able to to find so many great photos of the human history there. And I think it makes it one of the the better documented light stations uh, that I I know about. So uh, the book is coming out tomorrow. This uh, we're we're actually recording in early march but people will be hearing this uh, near the end of march on march 28th this will be released this uh, episode of the podcast and the book is scheduled to come out the following day march 29th and i assume it'll be available through amazon and other online booksellers and probably also through the the keepers of the Pedos Light website i would i would
2: guess yes
0: so it's not not going to be hard to find and I'm sure a lot of local people will want it. I have no doubt about that. But you know, there's a lot of lighthouse buffs out there who are just always looking for good new lighthouse books. So I recommend this one very highly. I think it'd have a good place on the shelf of any uh, any lighthouse buff. Idri and Terry Vinson, I really appreciate you spending this time with me today. And I wish you all the, the luck in the world with the book and you just did a fantastic job on it. So it's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much.
2: Thank you.
1: To learn more about the Keepers of the Pados Light, visit keepersofthepatoslight.org. That's Light.org. And you can buy the new book, Pados Island Lighthouse, from Amazon and other online booksellers.
0: Next, we're heading down to Florida. Cape Canaveral, on Florida's east coast midway between Jacksonville and Miami, is best known as the home of the Kennedy Space Center, the hub of the nation's space program. Humans have occupied the Cape for at least 12,000 years, and the name Canaveral, from Spanish for reed bed or sugar cane plantation, is the third oldest surviving European place name in the U.S.
1: Dangerous shoals around Cape Canaveral were a constant threat to mariners, leading to the establishment of a lighthouse in 1849. The original brick tower was 65 feet tall. There were complaints that the lighthouse wasn't tall enough, leading to a decision to build a new tower in 1859.
0: The Civil War postponed construction, and the Second Cape Canaveral Lighthouse began service in 1868. The 151-foot-tall tower was made of cast iron from a foundry in Cold Spring, New York. Testifying to its navigational importance, a large and powerful first-order Fresnel lens was installed in the lantern. The white lighthouse tower was given its familiar three black bands and three white bands in 1873.
1: Concern over erosion led to a decision in 1893 to relocate the lighthouse away from the beach to a new location a mile and a quarter inland. The tower was dismantled and the pieces were moved on a tram pulled by mules. The original brick lighthouse was blown up to provide material for a foundation at the new location. The lamp was lit at the new site in July
0: 1894. Over its 150-year history, Cape Canaveral had only nine principal keepers with Mills Alcott Burnham and his descendants keeping the light burning for a total of 80 years. The light was automated and the last keeper left in 1954. The Air Force became the owner of the automated lighthouse in 2000, with the Coast Guard continuing to maintain the light. Then, in 2002, the Cape Canaveral Lighthouse Foundation was formed.
1: Rear Admiral Jim Underwood, U.S. Coast Guard retired, graduated from the U.S. Coast Guard Academy and then completed a master's degree in public administration at Harvard University. His years in the Coast Guard included some time as the commander of the 17th Coast Guard District, overseeing operations in Alaska and the North Pacific. His military awards include the Coast Guard Distinguished Service Medal and three Legion of Merits. He's now the past president of the Cape Canaveral Lighthouse Foundation.
0: Becky Zingarelli is a Navy veteran, and she's had more than 35 years in business, program, and project management. Among many credits, she served as a consultant to the Department of Homeland Security, as the Collections Manager and Assistant Curator at the Veterans Memorial Center Museum in Brevard County, Florida, and as a consultant to Keep Brevard Beautiful. She's also a past president of the Museums of Brevard. She now serves as the Cape Canaveral Lighthouse Museum Director. I spoke with Becky and Jim earlier this month. Let's listen to that conversation now. I'm speaking with Becky Zingarelli and Jim Underwood, who are associated with the Cape Canaveral Lighthouse in Florida. How are you guys doing today?
4: Great. Great. Good to be Thanks here. Thanks for having
0: us. It's a beautiful spring-like day here on the New Hampshire seacoast. How are things down in Florida?
5: They're huh? absolutely gorgeous. <laughs> uh huh.
4: Probably a little warmer. It's a- only about 75 here.
0: Well, you don't have to rub it in, but uh, I just came in from a walk, and it's absolutely beautiful. So before we talk about the lighthouse, uh, I'd just like to talk a little bit about your background. Uh, Becky, before your position with the museum at Cape Canaveral, uh, you were the collections manager and assistant curator at the Veterans Memorial Center Museum in Brevard County, uh, among other things. I'm wondering if lighthouses have been a long interest of yours, and what led you to Cape Canaveral?
4: Well, actually, uh, winding up here has been a dream come true. It's a confluence of a a lot of different uh, factors in my life. I grew up here on the Space Coast uh, with the space program. My father worked in the early days of rocketry on the Apollo program and space shuttle programs. So I got my bachelor's degree in history from um, American University in Washington, and then I served in the U.S. Navy at a base less than 100 yards from the Cape Hatteras Lighthouse. Hmm. in North Carolina. So that's where I fell in love with lighthouses. We used to go there and and get our um, physical training by running up and down the steps of the lighthouse. So (laughs) that was a lot of fun. Um, Then after the Navy, I got my master's degree in history and actually wanted to get into historic sites management, but ended up taking a different path where I developed large computer systems for NASA and other agencies, including what the Cape Canaveral Space Force is now using out at the Range Operations Control Center for launching all the rockets out here and uh but I, my heart was always with nonprofits, so i retired early to focus on that and i've uh, had the opportunity like you said in 2015 to work with the veterans memorial center and uh really enjoyed pulling that museum together a brand new six thousand square foot museum and that's where um, bev merrilies who was another foundation member, member and jim underwood saw what i'd done over there and then asked me if i was interested in coming to um Cape Canaveral. And I said, of course, you know this is a, was a great opportunity. They mm-hmm. had such a wonderful vision of what it could be out there and, and what we're still working on. So that's how I got involved.
0: Okay. Well, thank you for that brief history. I would say the uh, Outer Banks of North Carolina is a good place to fall in love with lighthouses.
4: Yes, indeed.
0: So Jim, uh, I was reading online about your distinguished career in the Coast Guard. It's very impressive. I'm wondering if uh, lighthouses are something that have uh, kind of been on your radar for a long time. And what led you to become uh, involved in the board of directors of the Cape Canaveral Lighthouse Foundation?
5: I I guess my interest in lighthouses uh, developed over a long period of time. As a kid growing up in California, my family vacations would be drives along the California and Oregon coastlines. And my dad, who was a Coast Guardsman during World War II, would always take us to the lighthouses and he'd talk about. What an austere responsibility these light keepers must have had and the nobility and selfless devotion that they had to duty. It was like this was really inspiring as a young kid. I had no idea what he was talking about. But later in the Coast Guard, I served as a commanding officer of a buoy tender out of Cordova, Alaska, which is uh, sort of the gateway to Valdez and where all the tankers go in and out of. There were two lighthouses: Cape Hinchinbrook on Hinchinbrook Island and Cape Saint Elias on uh, Kayak Island, and we were responsible for maintaining those lights, in addition to all the other buoys and lights going in and out of the uh, that part of the Gulf of Alaska and the northernmost part of the uh, Pacific Ocean. In there, so it it became really interesting quickly to travel out to those remote sites spend a spend some time there and thinking about what it must have been like uh, as a lightkeeper in some of the storms we get and that kind of really keyed my interest later uh, bill younger came out with his harbor lights collection and my wife started buying those for me and uh, as you can see i've got almost <laughs> yep. all of them and then i retired in florida and uh, my interest in cape canaveral lighthouse uh, was certainly there, but it wasn't until Bob Merrill—he's also a a retired rear admiral in the Coast Guard, asked me to join the foundation board in about 2008, and that's when I really became actively involved.
0: Just so people know, we're speaking today via Zoom, and uh, I can see behind you your Harbor Lights collection, which is really impressive.
5: The other half of it is in front of me,
0: so Becky, uh, I know you've delved a lot into the history of the Cape Canaveral Light Station, which dates back to 1849. Uh, what for you is uh, really especially notable about the the history of the light station?
4: Uh, sure, um, one of the most interesting things I think is the basic construction of a lighthouse. You know, it's, it's all cast iron, built in sections, and each section is numbered. And so you assemble it by matching the numbers together, sort of a, a build by number kit. And that has come in very handy when it was built in 1868, right along the ocean. But by 1893, the sea was encroached, starting to encroach so much, they decided to move it. So they were able to disassemble it, move it um, by mule a mile and a half inland, and reassemble it by the numbers. So you know, that was that was pretty interesting. As far as the actual historical timeframes, uh, we have the um, the Civil War that intervened and shut down the light for quite a few years, and there was a temporary light there for a little while uh, before the 1868 light was uh, light house was actually built there. Um, but like many other lighthouses along the coast. Cape Canaveral played a role in both World War I and World War II in spotting and reporting enemy submarine and naval activity nearby. So like in World War II, there were six merchant ships that were sunk in 1942 in the space of less than six months right off the coast. But U-boats were never spotted. We only saw the fires from the sinking ships. Mm -hmm. Also with World War II is one of my favorite stories is the Banana River Naval Air Station was a uh, training center for bombing crews at that point and it's now uh, what is now Patrick Space Force Base, just a little bit south of here. But they had one of the bombing uh, ranges was very close to the lighthouse along the river and a little bit inland. Well, one night in 1944, a student bombardier was practicing his first night bombing run and he accidentally aligned his sights on the lighthouse instead of the lights of the bombing range and he let his um, practice bomb go and it actually exploded between the lighthouse and the coast guard building that was right next door fortunately nobody was hurt but the you know except for the reputation of the bombardier
0: wow well it would have been a lot worse for him and for everybody if anybody was hurt so so, exactly exactly
4: exactly exactly.
0: so i've read a bit about the human history there there's some really interesting history of the keepers and families living there It amazes me that there are only nine principal keepers in the station's history. Am I right when I say that?
4: That's true. That's true. And I think a lot of it is due to two of them were served for more than 30 years each. So that took up quite a bit of the time there. But a lot of it is because they were mostly all related over 80 years Mm -hmm. um, and many generations. So uh, Mills and Mary Burnham, uh, Mills was the first, well, the third lighthouse keeper, the first to stay for more than a year. And he and his wife had five daughters um, beginning in 1853, and four of them stayed on the Cape. And three of those married men who either were or became assistant keepers. And one of them, the other one was married to a house of refuge keeper nearby who was also the brother of a keeper. Um, but I find one of the most interesting stories is, is how that started, um, because when he became when Bernard became keeper in 1853, Almost immediately, he asked for military protection because the Seminole Wars were raging at that time, and they feared for their lives. So he was sent a squad of three um, army men to protect the lighthouse and his family. And one of the troops was Henry Wilson. Well, after the danger passed, Wilson left and finished his military career, but came back in 1855 and became an assistant keeper. And then a year later, married Burnham's oldest daughter, Frances. And so I always like to think, well, maybe he came back and became an assistant keeper because he wanted to get in his her parents' good graces to ask for her hand in marriage. But regardless, they, they started the dynasty there. And what uh, happened from that is that their one of their daughters married Clinton Honeywell, who was the other keeper who served for a total of 39 years. And so he was the grandson-in-law of the Burnhams. And he served until 1930. So between Burnham and Honeywell, there's quite a bit of history there. So, I mean, life on Cape Canaveral, for a lot of light stations, it's the same thing. Um, Back in the early days, especially, it was very isolated. And in fact, the first keeper, Nathaniel Scobie, was hired to oversee the construction of the lighthouse and was made keeper by virtue of the fact that he was the only person living anywhere near here. So that was um, a real pioneer times back then and but there was plentiful um, game and fishing and everything so the early settlers were able to live off the land and they started some of the earliest orange groves Mm -hmm. and the lighthouse actually became the social center of the cape area here but it would still take many decades before you could get to any stores or any civilization without taking several days to go by foot boat cart whatever to get there One of the other interesting things that they probably happened at a lot of other uh, lighthouses also is that the shipwrecks nearby, a lot of the goods would wash on shore. And one time there was a ship that was loaded with French boots back in the 1880s, and it sank right off the coast of Cape Canaveral. And all these boots washed on shore, just strewn about. And so it was said that for years you could see people walking around in mismatched shoes all the time.
0: I've heard about uh, coal washing up in shipwrecks and people uh, took the coal home and used it to heat their, their homes in the winter. But I've never heard of a shipload of uh, of boots uh, from a shipwreck.
4: Mm-hmm. Uh,
0: so, Be- Becky, of course, a lot of people know Cape Canaveral. I think pretty much everybody knows Cape Canaveral for the space program, uh, the Air Force Station, which is now the Space Force Station, right? Yes. Uh, but I'm, I'm wondering, uh, did the the uh, being right next door to rocket launches have any effect on the lighthouse?
4: Absolutely. Um, there's the we'll get into in a minute about the effect that it had of the Fresnel lens, but the early launch pads were actually within a mile or two of the lighthouse. In fact, the reason there Cape Canaveral exists probably because of the rockets is not only is it well located to be sticking out into the Atlantic Ocean so that the launches can go over uh, sea instead of land if, they, if there's an issue and that's closer to the equator. But the um, Lighthouse Service had purchased 826 acres around the Lighthouse when they moved it in 1893 because they didn't want civilization to start encroaching on it. So having that government-owned acreage right there, so we think, sort of clinched the deal to build the spaceport where they built it. And in fact, the early launches, uh, Werner von Braun would occasionally watch the launches from the top of the lighthouse until security told them it was too dangerous to do so. Um, but right now, but. These years, it's become completely surrounded by the historic and the active launch pads, and we even have one of the the newest pads is being refurbished for Blue Origin, uh, right next door to the lighthouse. And it's the amazon's Jeff Bezos' is company, and he's he's building a giant New Glenn rocket. And when that launches, we won't be able to be at the lighthouse at that time because it's so close. And in fact, now whenever spacex launches their um, rockets at their closer pad or when anything comes back to the cape you can't be there either um, but finally in um, 1993 it became apparent that the vibration from these rockets was starting to take its toll on the Fresnel our first order Fresnel lens um, on top of the lighthouse and it was decided to move that so it was replaced with a DCB224 arrow beacon at that time and But we just received news that um, the aero beacon was um, damaged, well not damaged, but uh, st- stopped working in mid-January, and mm. the Coast Guard decided instead of trying to repair it, they would replace it with the newer uh, Vega Rotating Beacon 25 LED system, which they hope to do sometime in March. And so we will have a, a new system up there that actually looks a little bit like a modern take on a Fresnel lens. Right. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Oh, that's neat. I I've heard about those uh, rotating LED lights. I think Oak Island in North Carolina just just got one. I think that was the first in the country. So you'll be you'll be one of the first. Great. Uh, yeah. So it's nice to get a, a rotating light mm-hmm. instead of a flashing uh, LED. Just doesn't have mm-hmm. the, the same effect. So that's that's good news. But what did happen with the first order Fresnel lens? Where is that today?
4: Well, fortunately, the Ponce Inland Lighthouse Museum, that's just a, an hour or so up the road near Daytona Beach, uh, was financially and technically able to take it and give it a very good home. They've, they've got it beauti- in a beautiful building with a lot of other Fresnel lenses in their collection, and they've done a great job at maintaining it and making it available for everybody to be able to see. So we're, it's it's not anything we're ever going to be able to get back here because certainly the pace of launches is increasing instead of decreasing. So... Uh, we're happy to be able to have it so close where we can visit.
0: Yeah, I was actually there a couple of years ago. In Ponts Inlet, uh, beautiful lighthouse and incredible lens display there. And Cape Canaveral lens is one of the the highlights of that. Didn't quite make it down to Cape Canaveral, but uh, one of these one of these years I hope to <laughs> visit you there. Uh, so uh, let's talk about the tours a little bit. I know the because the lighthouse is on the Cape Canaveral Space Force Station. Uh, people can't just drive right up to the lighthouse it's not that simple they need to take part in an organized tour can you describe a little bit about how that
4: how that works sure Um, if they want to go to our website at canaverallight.org and go to our visit page they can learn all about our visits but as you said Unfortunately, you cannot drive your vehicle out there. Uh, The tours that we have are with professional tour companies, and they provide the information to the Space Force uh, for security approval to bring each individual uh, on board. So for that reason, You have to also reserve your spot at least two days ahead of time so that that can occur. Um, Right now, we have active tours from our Canaveral Tours provider, and they offer a Tuesday morning, Thursday morning, and Saturday morning, three-and-a-half-hour tour that spends about an hour and a half of that at the lighthouse, and the rest is spent on visiting the Space Museum and other the space history areas uh, around the Cape, as well as the Hangar C, which is right next to our lighthouse, which is an annex to the museum, which houses some wonderful artifacts that they have um, from early space. In addition, what we're starting this month and we hope to be able to continue it is a lighthouse only tour, where if you don't have the time to spend that three and a half hours tour to see all those other wonderful sites too, Um, you'll be able to come out on occasional Wednesdays out to the lighthouse only through Canaveral Tours again um, and spend about an hour and a half at the lighthouse area. Mm -hmm. We did have another type of tour, which I'm hoping starts up again soon. But the Kennedy Space Center Visitor Center had a weekly five hour tour on a 50 passenger bus called the Rise to Space Tour. And part of that was stopping at the lighthouse in Hangar C as well. Unfortunately, we it's a little restrictive, but we're really hoping people um, can take the time and opportunity to come out here because it's its such a unique site.
5: Sure. You might also mention the tours we do for members and for per- people who purchase bricks. It's a special caravan tour. Sure.
4: Every quarter, as a benefit of being a member of uh, Cape Canaveral Lighthouse Foundation, we offer a what we call a caravan tour where you are allowed to register and drive your own vehicle to come on the base um, in a large caravan with a lead and a trailing vehicle but it's free and but it's straight out to the lighthouse and back so people who've bought bricks that are placed around the lighthouse can and are engraved with their names or memorials can come out and see that and people who are members and just want to come visit can do that once a quarter
0: Mm-hmm. okay Uh, so when people take limited capacity, limited capacity, Mm -hmm. yeah. Oh, I imagine so. Yeah. Uh, but it's all, all that information is on the website, right? Yes. Which is again is just mentioned again, canaveral light.org when people take part in these tours, do they get to climb the lighthouse
4: tower? Um, yes, but only limited, Mm -hmm. except for special event days when there are hundreds of people out there, visitors can climb to the fifth level um, our staircase is in the center because it was designed as a living space around in the bottom floors. So it's in the center and it's enclosed in a cylinder. So we allow people to go up to the fifth floor, but it's not enclosed beyond that, and so it's not safe. And the Space Force doesn't doesn't want anybody above that floor. So um, you can go up to the fifth floor and you can see quite a bit there. But you also have to be at least four feet tall because the stairs are a little difficult to navigate.
0: Sure, sure. I'm wondering how COVID-19, the pandemic for the past year, has affected your your operation there?
4: Well, like a lot of places, we were shut down for about seven months. Unfortunately, our new museum had only been open for three months when this occurred. Um, But we were actually able to reopen mid-October, and we've been very careful to institute the COVID-19 protocols for sanitizing, wearing masks, social distancing as well. And in the museum, we deactivated our interactive displays. Um, The tours are slowly ramping up. People are coming back. As a matter of fact, uh, almost every week we start, we're starting to sell the tours out again. So that's a very positive response um, from that. But we also have the uh, entire space around the lighthouse. The light station is quite picturesque and uh, a lot of room to move around.
0: Sure. Uh, You just mentioned the museum. Again, it's uh, it's pretty new, just opened in, in 2019. Can you tell us a little bit about what people see when they visit the museum?
4: Mm-hmm. Well, when we were designing this, we were faced with uh, a decision to make about what kinds of things to put in there and how much space we had. It's actually inside the a reconstructed uh, to new building standards, but with the same design and footprint of the headkeep, lighthouse keeper's cottage that was um, there from the beginning and so you can imagine it's and it's just the downstairs so it's relatively limited space and we also because of the nature of the Cape Canaveral um, Air, Air Force Station and Space Force Station coming up there were not very many artifacts left um, from over the years and things had fallen once the lighthouse was automated and the, and the Coast Guard keepers left very little was there, so we have don't have very many artifacts to display. So what we've done is we've created what we call timeline boards, which you can read through and see photos and uh, get all the information about the history from the very first brick lighthouse that was constructed in 1848 um, all the way to the present. So that is mostly of what you see in the, in the museum.
0: Mm-hmm. I was reading also there's going to be some new interpretive signage around the property. Uh, what's that going to entail?
4: Well, because of the constraints on the size of the museum, we weren't able to address several topics um, that we would have liked to. So we decided to utilize some of the space around the light station and also you know, use it as a, a mechanism to have people be able to wander a little bit more and enjoy the grounds a little bit. Beyond what they had been doing before. So we selected five topics that lend themselves to being outdoors and would be actually be more enjoyable outdoors. And that includes local flora. So you can actually, while you're reading the sign, you can see much of the things that are being talked are actually there. And we're talking about the local wildlife. Uh, We actually have possums and raccoons walk around the station all the time. And um, another one will be about the lives of the early settlers that were out there. Uh, another about the first peoples who lived out there before um, many Europeans came. And then the lastly, we'll have one that shows the layout of the whole light station when all the buildings were present.
0: So, Jim, I don't want you to think I'm ignoring you here. <laughs> I'll <haven't laughs> talk to you in a while. but. Uh, you were there for the establishment of the museum, which is absolutely amazing. I mean, to, to reconstruct that keeper's house, as Becky described, and to establish that museum, I think it was an amazing accomplishment. Two questions regarding that. Uh, why did the organization decide to create the museum, and how was it financed?
5: Uh, both great questions. When the organization formed back in 2002, Uh, It had as a mission, and it's still our mission today, to assist the 45th Space Wing in preserving, protecting, promoting, and interpreting the lighthouse and its historical significance to the Florida Space Coast, state of Florida, and our nation. Well, looking at old pictures and seeing what we had, uh, a lighthouse and a oil house, and then looking at the old pictures of what that compound used to look like with the beautiful buildings and just a layout, it, it soon became our vision to recreate that experience for our visitors. And so we sort of adopted this uh, title, this, this uh, chant of what was once will be again. Hmm. That led us to developing and working with an architect who uh, laid out the plans, drew uh, beautiful, uh, using, using the Coast Guard's drawings or blueprints on what those old cottages looked like. And then turning those into modern day meeting modern day code buildings so that they would be replica cottages, very, uh, very close, if not exact in what they used to look like. That was the easy part, uh, designing and, and having a vision of what you want. The harder part was, as you asked, how was it financed? We were very fortunate. We've had uh, a, a good, I wanna say, sponsorship from our, our local community. The uh, Brevard County Commissioners through the Tourism Development uh, Council uh, provided us with a very large grant of $500,000. Uh, the state of Florida, uh, provided $250,000 of matching funds, and then our own organization contributed uh, another significant amount, so that we could start the construction and of of what would have been all three cottages, which is what we have the plans approved for. But the uh, the funding didn't support all three cottages. We were able to build the museum. Uh, which was the, the keeper's cottage and a, um, a very modern and needed restroom facility that appears to like one of the old workhouses uh, that was on the property. The other two cottages, the second uh, assistant keeper's cottage and the first assistant keeper's cottage still need to be built. The nice thing is when we built the first cottage, which is our museum, we also, prepared all of the underground work for the other two cottages, the electrical and plumbing, uh, drainage. So that's all in place, and that's that's quite a bit of the expense. Now what we need to do is obviously build the, uh, the above-ground work that you can see and in, in use.
0: So, uh, yeah, I was reading about the, the planned expansion. There's been some news uh, lately. It's been in the press uh, can you say a little bit more about that? Uh, what uh, what the plan? You said uh, the the two additional uh, cottages, but maybe can you give a little more detail about I what cer- the plans Certainly
5: are? can. Uh, mm-hmm. We anticipate that uh, it'll be uh, close to the same amount to build the second two cottages as it was the first cottage, the restroom facility, and, and the underground uh, layment work. Probably uh, less than a million dollars for these next two. But that's, that's certainly our, our goal is to raise a million dollars. Um, the, the work in this, the first cottage that would be completed, if we don't do them both at the same time, will be the second assistant keepers cottage. It was a one story building and we intend to turn that into an educational center. Uh, this, we already provide, um, field trip, uh, programs that meet the state requirements for a, histo- uh, for a history lesson for fourth graders out to the lighthouse. This, of course, was impacted by COVID, so we haven't been able to do it since then. But that's just one piece of our education program. We also uh, envision adult education, research opportunities, weekly lecture series on the history of the area, uh, varying uh, people coming in and, and, and talking. This, this is going to be a real nice add on to what our museum is already providing as far as a historical presentation.
0: Yeah.
5: The third cottage would be the first assistant keeper's cottage. It's very similar in size and and layout as the keeper's cottage. We we are planning and have already been collecting and storing safely period furniture so that when we construct this we'll be able to outfit it as what it was like to live, you know, what they had available to them, it'll be like going into a, uh, a the lighthouse back in the 30s. So that's that's our plan for that. Uh, certainly, we're going to also continue to work on the development of the grounds. Uh, we share these grounds with some middens and and uh, burial grounds of Eyes Indians of the I Indians. And so we're always respectful of the archaeological uh, aspects of our site, which is uh, all part of what we're planning to bring forward in uh, some of our future uh, programs.
0: I think you're developing that place into a real world-class lighthouse destination. And I was thinking about how the whole east coast of Florida is really a pretty amazing place for lighthouses. I mean, with St. It is, and and
5: we're we are impressed and fortunate to be part of that yeah uh, we look at uh, the lighthouses along here and and hope to join them in their world class uh presentation
0: yeah
4: well, if i could be... interject one thing sure. along those lines is that as I, I was mentioning we have very few artifacts the saint augustine lighthouse and maritime museum was very very generous and lent uh, loaned us uh, many lighthouse artifacts for our mm-hmm. museum
0: oh that's great yeah i was there a couple of years ago too and that uh... Yeah, those are both,
5: uh, the ones you mentioned are both fun to visit.
0: Yeah, Ponsonlet, Inlet, Hillsborough sure. too. There's a whole bunch on these. Yeah, places. there are. Yeah, uh, it's, it's got to be a prime destination for any lighthouse buff. So uh, we've already mentioned the, the uh, website a couple of times. Is that the best place for people to go if they'd like to learn more or and or make a donation to the organization? Uh, you know,
5: Jeremy, we make it very easy for people to help support us. <laughs> That's Good. That's got to be the trick. We just revamped our entire website. It's so uh, convenient, easy to work with. When you open up canaverallight.org, on the very front page at the top, there's a blue box that reads support us. You click on that, and there are many ways to, to uh, support the Lighthouse in donations, becoming a member, uh, becoming an annual sponsor. Just being a, a purchaser of a brick or or one of the uh, benches that we have available. These are fundraising programs. Uh, so, it, yes, it's very easy. And I'll say that again. It's www.canaverallight.org.
0: Yeah, it's a beautiful website I've been looking at it lately.
5: So I have a, a
0: final question for each of you. This is for bonus points, so I don't know who wants to take this first. You can uh, fight over who takes it first here, but the question is, uh, what do you enjoy most about your work with uh, the Cape Canaveral Lighthouse and Museum? Becky, you want to go first?
4: Sure, sure. Well, um, everything that I've said before about the confluence of all of my interests uh, coming out there, but I just... I, I get goosebumps still every single day when I drive out on the Cape Canaveral Space Force Station, past all of this history and all of this current uh, space activity, and I see the lighthouse rising right next to the launch pads. It's just amazing to me.
0: Yeah. Between the history of the space program there and the lighthouse, wow, what a, what a place. So, Jim, uh, what oh. do you like best about it?
5: Well, I, I, I can't uh, disagree with what Becky just said. I guess I'd add to it that for me it's the enthusiasm and knowledge and energy of our volunteers and and certainly of Becky in their support to the foundation's mission. Uh, truly the backbone of our organization and makes it really fun and and you feel successful at what we're trying to accomplish here. That would be that would be probably where I would put it is with the people. Although there are times uh, late in the afternoon when I know nobody else is there, that I'll drive out and sit on the rocker on the porch and uh, feel the sun setting behind me. And just kind of, uh, it's a beautiful place.
0: I'm just imagining that. That's a yeah. beautiful, beautiful picture. So Becky Zingarelli and Jim Underwood, I want to thank you so much for spending this time with me today. Again, I, I, I've got to say I'm, I'm really so impressed by what you've accomplished there and uh, your plans are wonderful to hear about. And uh, maybe I'll wait a couple of years until you have those uh, additional houses built and everything before I come down there, because I've been to a lot of Florida lighthouses, but not yours yet. So I've got I've to make it there. I'll give you a heads up when I come down. So again, uh, Becky and Jim, thanks so much. I appreciate it very much.
3: Thank thanks.
4: you, Jeremy. Thank
0: you.
1: Thanks again to our guests, Idri and Terry Vinson of the Keepers of the Paidos Light and Becky Zingarelli and Jim Underwood of the Cape Canaveral Lighthouse Foundation. And thanks, as always, to everyone with the U.S. Lighthouse Society. Check out uslhs.org to find out more about all the things the society has to offer.
0: Thank you, Cindy. And to everyone, as always, we thank you for listening and...
1: Keep a good light.
0: Everywhere I
1: go, I'm gonna let it shine.
0: Everywhere
1: i uh-huh.